I don't know how many of you know the name J.J. Watt, but in case you don't, I see at least a hand up there, football fans. J.J. Watt is one of the greatest living football players. He is a defensive end, sometimes even a tight end for the Houston Texans. And because he has just broken so many records, is year after year an all-pro, uh, an all-star in every single sense, he has been asked many, many times uh, for the secret to his life. He has his own personal motto as follows, dream big, work hard. J.J. has lived that out from the time he was a little boy in all kinds of ways. And the result of that is that he is now regarded widely as one of the greatest football players in the NFL, maybe one of the greatest players who's ever played the game. And because he has won so many awards and got so much acclaim and defines what it means to really play this sport, he is constantly sought after for autographs. Recently, the tables were turned on him. December the 15th, he received in the mail a package containing a football jersey autographed and a note that went along with that. And it was not his autograph, it was somebody else's autograph on the football jersey, and this note explains what this was all about. Dear JJ, the note reads, I am seven years old. I also play defensive end like you. I also wear number 99 like you. I was the most feared rusher in my league this year, and that seven-year-old league is tough, don't you be fooled. And he was fearsome, this young man. I am sending you my autographed game jersey, so you will know me when I am a professional football player. Signed, your friend, Anthony Tarantelli. Talk about a kid who knows what he wants to be when he grows up. And J.J. so loved this particular note and this gift that he tweeted about it, went out on Twitter that very day and said, this kid has got some guts, and I really like it. When we meet him in the second chapter of Luke today, Jesus is in some sense a kid like that. He is extraordinarily focused on who he is and where he's going and how he hopes to get there. This is not the same Jesus that we saw at Christmas time, even though it's the same chapter in the Bible, Luke chapter 2. It's where we read about the babe lying in a manger. But much time, Kronos, has elapsed since that particular encounter with Jesus. And now we're seeing him in the process of really growing up. Other than a brief a vignette that we get in Matthew's gospel in which we're told about how Jesus and his family escaped down to Egypt as refugees during a time when King Herod is on a genocidal rampage in Israel. We don't really get any other information about the youth of, of Jesus from the time that he is eight, years, eight days old being circumcised in the temple all the way to the time that he's 30 years old bursting out into his public ministry. The only vision or picture we get of the, the growing up Jesus is this particular passage that I'm about to read to you. And so I want to invite you to pay close attention to it because this, the, its inclusion in the scriptures is sort of the Bible's way of saying, notice this. This is going to give you all you really need to know about the vision of Jesus as he grew 
and his passion for becoming who he would become. So listen to the word of God as it comes to us from Luke chapter 2 at verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival. And while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Now, I know this sounds like poor parenting. But you've got to understand that in ancient times, there was not quite the panic about child security as there is today. And, and families traveled in great big packs, and everybody took care of everybody else's kids. It would be wonderful if it still worked that way. Maybe it can work that way around here. Everybody watched out for everyone else. And so it's not inconceivable at all that this kind of thing could happen. But thinking that he was in their company... Traveling for a day, they eventually wake up, and then they begin looking for him among their relatives and friends, the Bible says. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. It sounds a little bit like sort of Home Alone, the Israelite version, right? (laughs) So that's the scene so far. The story goes on as follows. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. He was a precocious kid. He's the kind of kid that might have written a note like J.J. Watt got, right? They were amazed at his maturity. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You didn't answer a single one of our texts. <laughs> Some families have been there, right? You've, you've been in that place of terror, terrified worry over the well-being of one of your, of your young ones. But then Jesus replies to them here. And, and you begin to wonder, who in this encounter is really the most mature one? And he says, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? An older translation renders that same line. Didn't you know that I just had to be about my father's business? But they they did not understand what he was saying to them. They did not yet understand the fullness of of who Jesus was and was becoming. Now, I love this particular story for a bunch of reasons. One, because I I love the fact that it shows us Jesus living in the middle of an ordinary family, right? I mean, these are normal family things. Lost kids, you know, struggles uh, between parents and and children, you, you know, it's not written in here, but you can imagine Mary and Joseph, you know, I thought you were watching him, you know. There would have been that kind of tension going on. This is Jesus living in the midst of the messiness and the color and the life of a family like the one you and I are in. The ones we come from, the ones we're trying to build. I love the story for that alone. But I especially love this story because in this particular passage, we're being given a picture of Jesus, who at a very young age is incredibly clear about what he wants to grow up to be, right? As clear as that Anthony Tarantelli boy and more so. 
Jesus is determined to be like his heavenly father. Jesus is, is, is very committed to having his life be about his father's business, about continuing the work of his heavenly father. He is going to set records in the religion field. We know that now from hindsight. But he's already wearing the jersey in his heart, in a sense. And what I want you to especially notice is because of that intention Jesus has. Uh, he, he, he is very deliberate about making the kind of crucial connections that are going to prepare him for exactly that future. He's not leaving this to chance. He is already acting in certain ways that are going to be used of God to prepare him for the future that he has in mind. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment with me. His whole extended family are on a parade out of town, right? The Passover is over, and they've all picked up their belongings, and they are streaming out of Jerusalem back from whence they came. And there is only one person in this huge parade that's turned around and has gone the other way, and it's Jesus. Why? Because he wants to be in his father's house. He's not done being in his father's house. He is hungry and longing to be in his father's house. And they find him in the temple courts. Jesus wants to be connected to his father, his heavenly father in worship. He wants to gaze into the glory of who God is in the special way that people in, in ancient times felt would happen. You felt the presence and the power of God when you were in the temple. And Jesus wanted to be in that particular place. He didn't want to leave it behind. You see this, this crucial connection he's reaching for. And then secondly, Jesus, Jesus is also really committed here to, to being around people who care about God the way he does. He wants to be connected to this community of other believers. That's why he's found sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus just loved fellowship with other earnest seekers after God because connecting with and shaping communities of disciples is going to be his life's game. Right? He doesn't just show us the character of God, although that would be enough. He shows us the character of God in technicolor, but he also shows us how to be part of these circles where God makes his presence felt in an ongoing way, day after day, even when you're outside the temple, even when you're away from the church. This is the, a great theme of the life of Jesus. He has his smaller circle always that he's working with. And, and then when his parents finally find him, and when it's obviously time to go, you know, from the look on mom's face. It is really time to go. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus then went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. In other words, alongside of this devotion he has to worshiping God and to being in the fellowship and growing with a group of other believers, Jesus is at heart a servant. Okay? That, that, that's the defining reality of his nature. He is at heart a servant. And so we see him pulling away from what he would love to do. Stay in that temple, stay with those people that he cared about and was growing with. We see him taking the role of a servant and going obediently to serve in his family for what all we know, the next 18 years. He's just taking out the trash. He's helping dad in the carpenter shop. 
He's just serving with the gifts that he has. I just love this picture of Jesus and these crucial connections that he makes. And the implication here is that God uses these things. Because the passage ends like this. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and all people. The result of sort of these commitments he makes is that Jesus grows in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and all people. It's one of my very favorite verses in the Bible. Because, you know, it is a spectacular vision for all of us. I mean, I can't imagine too many goals in life that are more worthy. If you're looking for a purpose, if you want a picture of what you want to be when you grow up, here it is. Resolve to be somebody who grows in wisdom and in strength and in intimacy and favor with God and and be so filled with God that you are beloved by other people because all of the fruit of God's character, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, humility, courage, justice, all these things are just brimming out of your life because of the way you're so deeply connected to him. So, So here's the question I want to pose for us today on this significant day in our history together. Are you clear about what you want to be when you grow up? Do you have a a picture in your head of what it is you're moving towards? And and what are you doing, or what, what could you do to really live intentionally toward that vision? That's what I want to invite you to to think about um, with me today. Um, what do you want your character, for example, to look like a year from now? Uh, How do you want your relationship with God to have developed or with other critical people in in your life, key people in your life? Um, How resilient do you want your life to be? Uh, What kind of inner spiritual strength do you want to have developed so that when life hits you hard, you know, like a defensive end plowing around the corner and slamming you, you're going to be able to get up again. Uh, How resilient are you ambitious to be? What kind of a family member do you intend to become? Or a co-worker or a friend? How will others remember you uh, when the last tick of your clock goes talk? You know, how, how much will you have committed or contributed to the work of God's kingdom? How much will you, will you have shaped this world for the good by the end of your journey. In other words, are you dreaming big? Are you dreaming big? Uh, Are you working hard toward that ultimate outcome so that even now, little by little, as the quotation from Bono says on the cover of your worship bulletin today, little by little, you're starting to fill up the jersey. You know, is is that going on for you? I ask you that question because... You are part of a legacy of people where this was the reality. This was the pathway, so to speak. Um, you're part of a people who, who amazingly took on this vision of life and made it uh, their own. Fifty years ago now, uh, this coming April, a small group of Christ followers dreamed really big. Uh, and they resolved to work really, really hard towards fulfilling that vision. And the year was 1965. Um, and, and, and that was a crazy year in American culture. I mean, there, were, there was war uh, on the news. 
there was, uh, you know, terrible acts of violence uh, being, being described. The, 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 there was awful conflict between races. There, there was uh, growing gaps between generations. Uh, there, there, was, there was gridlock in government. There was polarization of the parties. There, the church, churches were, were getting politicized into the right side or the left side of the, of the political. There was, this was all, does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar to you? And yet in the midst of this entire context, this small group of, of Christ followers, they, they, they resolve that they're going to find a better way. They're going to live a different way. And so they, they start to gather together in the basement of Arthur and Gladys de Kreider. Arthur and Gladys were a 30-something couple uh, who had a wonderful young daughter. They were just a young family. And they opened up their home and they said, come on in. And they began to hold Bible studies in their, in their basement and hold conversations and, and, and to dream together. And they began to hold... Um, these, these gatherings that in many ways modeled the same crucial connections that Jesus made. And not accidentally. They met every single week as a group to gaze into the face of God. And to open themselves to his glory and his goodness. And to pray for his grace and his truth to fill them up and use them in the world. And then in 1969, as they were meeting at that point in the Butler School Gymnasium just down the road. And the group had grown and they were meeting there, but they thought, no, we want more people to experience this. And so those 200 people took out second mortgages on their home, many of them. And they built a sanctuary that could hold 1,200 because they wanted everybody to be able to come and gather and gaze into the face of this glorious, majestic, magnificent God and be filled with him in a way that would transform their life as they went out into the world day by day. Those first Christ Church members also committed themselves to gathering in these littler groups to study and to learn together. Uh, Dr. DeCryder taught this famous course called Basic Christianity. Uh, some, of them, some of you in the room took the course. And, and then there were gatherings that, that, that uh, studied Christian parenting. And there were, there were youth groups that got formed and children's groups and Bible study groups and, and prayer groups and support groups of many, many kinds that got formed. And, and God used all of these circles of intimate relationship and support to draw more and more people towards the community of faith that was beginning to, to, to form here. And they found, all these people found, the Christ Church was a place where you could get timeless biblical truth, the stuff that had lasted over the ages, and you could get that truth and it would get applied to the problems and challenges and great opportunities of daily life in a way that really equipped you to live out there in the changing uh, homescape and the marketplace of a very tumultuous America. And, and that young congregation also dedicated itself to service in a remarkable way. I mean, they really did. You know, back in the day there, 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 were, just, there were hardly any staff members here. Um, there were a lot of people, but not a lot of staff. And so everybody in the church pretty much had something to do. Everybody pitched in. They used their talents and their gifts 
in all kinds of ways. They set up and took down the folding chairs over in the Butler gym every single week. They converted the, the school classrooms into Sunday school rooms. They, they, uh, they, they volunteered to, to pass out bulletins and to teach the Sunday school and to lead the youth ministry and to uh, form the mission committee and to be the hospitality workers in the church. They, they were very, everybody felt like it was part of their role to follow the example of one who had been the servant of all. Are you getting this picture? Do you know what happened? Have you ever heard about this? About what some people came to call the miracle on 31st Street? That body of Christ, that little body of Christ, at a time when churches were dying out all over the western suburbs, that little community grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, those who were being brought into this life. Christ Church became one of the first 12 megachurches in America. It became one of the first uh, Christian media ministries in these United States. And more importantly, it became this seed sower just like the statue you'll see out in the lobby, the narthex there. It became this amazing seed sower. As, as the people of this church would go out to serve and influence communities and workplaces and, and fund missionaries, tens of millions of dollars over these 50 years distributed to feed and clothe and educate and evangelize and support people of all kinds. What an awesome history. What an amazing legacy we come from. But you know what? I've got great news for you. God ain't done. Okay? 50 years later, he's still at work in this place in an amazing way. If you just walked in here, your timing was perfect. Because extraordinary things are happening in the life of Christ Church right now. In these coming months, we're going to have this big conversation as a church about where we sense God is leading us to go further in these decades ahead. But before we rush into that, I want to take just this opportunity today to think about our present and and about the role that each of us plays in what God is seeking to do in the here and now. And if I could just sum it up in in a simple term, it's time for you. Like it was once time for those people. It is time for you to step fully into those connections that will enable you to fulfill God's purpose through this church and for your life as well. So think about this with me because I'm going to really speak bluntly. (laughs) There is no way that I can think of, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff, There's no way I can think of for us to develop the wisdom and the stature and the favor with God and the witness with other people that is so desperately needed in our tumultuous world if if there are too many of us in the circle living as the kind of pseudo-disciples, the kind of cultural Christians that unfortunately has become increasingly commonplace in America today. If you come to worship, or if I come to worship just once or, or twice a month, if, I, if, if we think, you know, I'm going to get well-fed enough to handle anything out there if I just listen to a sermon now and then, hopefully just a 50-second one. 
If, if we fall into a pattern of being a spectator or kind of a consumer at a party that somebody else is throwing, at a church that somebody else built, somebody else is funding, somebody else is making happen, if we fall into this pseudo sense of discipleship, we will never become like Jesus. And that is his plan. We will never fulfill the role he's given to his church in the world. We will never be able to fill up his jersey in the way that Jesus said that one day we would. You will do even greater things than I have done when I go to the Father, Jesus said, and when I send the Holy Spirit upon you. So here's my challenge. And it is a challenge, if that's not obvious. In this very historic year, let us all make the crucial connections by which God's power moves into and through human lives as modeled by Jesus and as illustrated in the life of the church, the history of our church. So here's three ideas real quick for you. First, come to worship every week. That you're in town. Come to worship every single weekend that you're in town. Uh, And it's going to be worth your while. We're starting in a very short time, uh, two weeks from now, a new series called No Worries. We're just going to look at the issue of anxiety and worry in our life and how it's driving us and how God can, dis- can dissolve it and, and transform it into, into a deeper kind of peace. And I don't know too many of us that don't need that message. Come to worship every single week that you're in town. If you're part of our live stream congregation, you, you've gotten really comfortable sitting at home with the feet up and the coffee, we have that there for you when you're sick. When you're not sick, get yourself in here. Right? Be part of us. Because you know what? We need you. We miss you when you're not here. We want to be together praising God like we've been doing today and soaking up his glory and his grace as the people of God. Secondly, if you're not part of a smaller group of disciples beyond your worship experience, rethink that. If you're not part of of that kind of community of others where you listen and ask questions like you see Jesus doing and, 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 and where you have the kind of experiences that the greatest Christian disciples always have had, apparently, then, then get yourself into a group where you can be spiritually nourished in, in a deeper way. Don't depend on, on, on the preachers alone to feed you. You are not too busy for this. Okay? You're not. If Jesus, with his schedule, right, and the number of people clamoring after his energies, if he could make time for his small group, his circle of 12, his group of three, as religiously and faithfully as he did, I know you and I can do it. The titans of industry and corporate life that founded Christ Church were busy people. But they committed themselves to these smaller circles of discipleship. Their kids were plugged into those kinds of circles. It was a priority for them. And God grew them in wisdom and in stature and in favor with him and with all people. And that's our destiny as well. That group connection will revolutionize your spiritual life. I'm a reasonably busy guy. I'm still part of a group. Every, I get up early to, to be part of that kind of a group experience. I couldn't imagine being a Christian without that. Finally, if you've not yet made a servant connection here, if you are still operating on the assumption that this place doesn't actually need your talents, your, your, your treasure, 
then please rethink that. Because there are a lot of things that we are dying to do, that God wants to see us do, that need to be done in this world, that are just waiting for one thing. For some of us to step out of the spectator seats and out of the comfy chair of consumer Christianity and get in the game. Right? Get in the game. That young man over there, Sam Bodie, who led our, our, our prayer just a little while ago, after the first time he did that, the last service, he left the, bill, he left the, the, the house here, went downstairs and taught a fifth grade Sunday school class. You know? This is what we've been at our best. We've been a symphony of servanthood here. So before you leave today, before you leave today, fill out one of those connection cards we gave you. Don't just toss it away. If you need time to take it home and think about it and pray over it, that's cool too. But eventually, check some of those boxes. Give it to an usher. Drop it by one of the stations in the commons. And let us help you make the kind of spiritual connections that Jesus made. That the history of the church has been serious about making. And it will be life-changing for you. I'd like to close, if I may today, with one final story. And it's going to take some imagination on all of our parts. I want to invite you to, to imagine that you have been transported into the bowels of Hades. Now, that's not a very good vision because it's coming. It will be February. It will be called February here in, here in Chicago. No, seriously, imagine you're in, you're in the dark zone. And Satan is standing there and he's, he's gathering all of his minions around him. And he says, I'm looking for a volunteer to go to the world and to help in the final ruination of human souls. And one of the demons, an ambitious one, steps forward and he says, Master, I'll go. And Satan looks with pleasure at this beaming young protege and he says, What will you tell the children of Adam and Eve? that they might be destroyed. And the demon is excited and hopping, and he says, I will tell them there is no heaven. And Satan gets a frown on his brow, and he says, it will never work. For within every single one of them, the great enemy above has placed eternity in their hearts, and they will not believe you. You may not go. And then a moment later, another one slithers forward, a little tremulous now because of the upbraiding of the last one. And this one, who is fouler than the first one, says, Send me, master. And Satan responds, If I send you, what will you tell the humans? And the little one said, I will tell them there's no hell. And Satan again shakes his head and throws up his hands and says, Well, they won't believe that. He said, God has also given to each of them some sense of ultimate accountability, of the ultimate defeat of our cause. You may not go. Now, all of the demons are trembling. They don't know what to do. But there's one enterprising one left. And he pushes his way through the crowd. And he makes his way to the front. And Lucifer looks at him and says, What is it? What is it? What would you say to aid in the ruination of human beings? And this one, 
a more mature demon, a wiser demon, if that's not a contradiction in terms, he says, well, our enemy above has shown himself desperate to give human beings the life for which they are made. He will sacrifice everything, even his own life, for their sake to give them this life for which they have been made. And he has shown the master the connections that will grow them into these magnificent beings. And some of them are on the verge of making those connections. So I will tell them there is no hurry. <laughs> 